0: Hired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr-Kirtley.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode 161 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show we will be discussing the way that real-life legal principles would apply to comic book superheroes, and I'm joined by two guests. So, first up, we've got James Daly an attorney who works for the Washington University in St. Louis Center for Empirical Research in the Law. He's also the creator and co-author of the blog Law in the Multiverse, and co-author of the book The Law of Superheroes. So, James, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thanks for having
1: me. And also joining us today is Brad DeNoyer. He's an associate teaching professor at the University of Missouri-Columbia School of Law, where he earned his law degree and where he also teaches a course on comic books to undergrads. Prior to teaching, he wrote some Batman-related stories for DC Comics, And he's also contributed to James's blog, Law in the Multiverse. So, Brad, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: And I also just want to thank listener Benjamin Keel for helping to inspire this panel. So, Benjamin, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, so first of all, I'm just curious about how you guys got into comics in the first place. So, James, why don't we start with you and have you
0: just tell us a bit about your background as a comic book fan. Sure. Um, I grew up watching, as a kid, uh, the old Adam West Batman series. I not old enough to have seen it when it ran originally, but as, as reruns. And that's one of the first comic book related things I can remember. And I remember going with my, one of my older brothers to the comic book shop, um, around the time of the death of Superman storyline and the, um, the dark Knight uh, series with the, where Batman had his back broken by Bane. And that should give you an idea of the sort of grim, dark early nineties comic book uh, scene that I came into, uh, when I first started reading, reading comic books. But, uh, that's how my uh, my interest in comic books got started.
1: Uh, and How about Brad? How did you get into comic books?
2: Yeah, you know when you when you're in grade school and they have that like Scholastic fair when they bring books in and stuff and there's like all these books from Scholastic there was a book there. Uh, it was a bio- biography of all the X-Men and I just thought this was the coolest thing I was like uh, in fourth grade. I think the TV show had just started uh, the Saturday morning cartoon and I just devoured this concept of the X-Men. These Things that people didn't really uh, like that had these great powers they are all very unique, both in terms of power sets and both in terms of personality. And I just really loved that and just really started getting into comics. Then more as I was a late teenager, uh, started reading comics and um, mostly reading Batman like everyone else in the world. Um, and then in college reading more like a why the last man uh, X machina, anything by Brian K Vaughn, I guess uh, anything on the vertigo line. Uh, and, and then Walking Dead started. <laughs> so,
1: yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and then you also you actually got into writing comic books too, right? When when did that happen?
2: Right. So when I was in law school, um, I contacted this uh, author named Brad Meltzer, who I'm sure you've all heard of. Um, he wrote Identity Crisis for DC, and he's written a numerous New York Times bestsellers. And uh, I reached out to him saying, you know, I can I make you coffee? Can I? <laughs> I'm really good at making coffee and, and you know, can I do anything? Can I sharpen your pencils? And he was like, you know what? Give me a call. Let's talk. Uh, somehow we got along and I ended up working for him for a couple of years. And um, I wrote this uh, story. It was a Shazam story and I sent it to uh, DC through Brad and they, thought the Shazam story was okay. And so they let me write um, a couple of short Batman stories. I wrote one for like a Halloween special where you put like a bunch of mini stories together. Um, I did another special uh, about villains and then I did a backup story for one of the uh, annuals. And so that was really, really fun to do. Um, Mike Martz was the editor and he was just a great guy. And and Lee Ferguson was the artist on the last two stories. And he was just uh, a great artist to work with. And that was a really fun period of my life to get to try to do that you know? yeah,
1: yeah yeah and, and so then like was it just that after you finished law school you just didn't have time to write comics anymore or do you well
2: I was, I was in law school and then I wrote two and I was an attorney and um well I mean there's so many people I, I I don't think it was necessarily that uh I, I mean I've been busy teaching it's something you think you have to you maybe you have to do full-time and pursue um I kind of you know I, I wrote the Batman stories I, I guess someday I might try and write my own story um, and then go from there, but uh, it's a hard place to break into. Even after you write your story, you still can't necessarily, you know, break into it. Um, not everyone is, is as genius as Scott Snyder or hmm.
0: etc. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and so and James, and so you you started this law in the multiverse
0: uh, blog. Tell us about how did that get started? Uh, the the germ of the idea for law in the multiverse actually came from a dinner conversation that my wife and I had with a couple of friends of ours. My wife and I are both attorneys, and um, at some point during the dinner conversation, um, it, the subject turned to to Superman, I guess, as these things so often do, and um, the observation was made that if if everybody on Krypton had X-ray vision, then either they would all line their walls with lead, or they'd have to have very different privacy laws. And uh, a friend of mine suggested that I should write a blog about that kind of stuff, uh, and that he would read it, and that'd be at least one person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I should make a little footnote here that to uh, all the listeners that I am... Fully aware that um, the majority, if not all, Kryptonians on Krypton, um, uh, orbiting its red sun, do not have superpowers, and so that is a sort of hypothetical, hypothetical. Uh, I have to make that note because uh, I've told this uh, origin story, I guess a few times, and whenever I fail to mention that fact, um, the, the, I, I tend to get some some mm-hmm. mail uh, about it some, and some angry comments. Uh, but uh, so no, no, I'm aware that superman's powers come from earth's yellow sign and that's uh so uh, that's all uh kind of hypothetical but uh but anyway so i started the the, the blog and, and laid out a few uh posts to start it off with and uh posted it to a website called uh, metafilter that i'm a member of and uh, it really took off from there and became surprisingly popular and for uh, the first few years i had a, a, a co-author ryan davidson who helped uh uh, write quite a lot of posts and helped write the the book that came out of it. Um, He's since moved on to uh, focusing full-time on his uh, own law practice, um, but uh, but he was instrumental in uh, really getting the the ball rolling with uh, putting out a lot of posts in the, those early days. Right.
1: And so how many people are involved with the site now? I mean, how many people do you have writing for it?
0: Uh, well, I'm, so I'm the, 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 sort of the primary writer. And then from time to time, we have guest posts from uh, a wide variety of people from uh, T- attorneys and other legal professionals all over the uh, of the world, uh, uh, law professors uh, uh, like like Brad and from elsewhere, um, and uh, really quite a uh, nice uh, set of contributors uh, that have uh, offered to write posts uh, over the years, and uh, also been um, lucky enough to have uh, some interviews with uh, with people like Mark Wade, uh, a great comic book writer, probably best known recently for his work on the, a long run on uh, Daredevil. Which is, of course, of particular interest to uh, to me, as uh, seeing because uh, the main character is also an attorney.
2: And that, uh, I went, I went um, to the first law school Halloween party as Matt Murdock, and was... I think zero <laughs> people knew who I was. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: was, that was well, amazing. there you go. There, there you go. Your disguise was perfect.
2: Yeah, yeah. Always, always tell people you're a comic book fan, and they'll always appreciate it, <laughs> or have no idea what you're talking about. Huh. So, so when
1: you interview a big comic book uh, creator like that, do you focus on the legal aspects, or do you, is it just more of a pop culture, general interest interview?
0: Uh, well, we talk a bit about the characters and the, and the plots and everything, but also something that I think that people want to see from Law and the Multiverse, as opposed to uh, any other uh, comic book uh, news site or, or whatever, is, um, is is some discussion of the, of the legal aspects. So, where um, they get their ideas for that, uh, if they have a, a but uh, just they draw from their own research, or if they have an attorney they like to work with to bounce ideas off of to make sure things are basically correct, or at least um, not taking too many liberties for the benefit of the plot or for pacing. And uh, and so yeah, we we usually find that uh, people like Mark Wade or Dan Slott that have written uh, attorney characters will usually have uh, an attorney they know either from the comic book uh, publisher or just they happen to know. Uh, they'll bounce some ideas off of and make sure things are are basically all right
1: right i mean do any of these people stand out in your mind as having done a particularly good job or gone to some extraordinary lengths to get the legal stuff right
0: well wade's work on daredevil was was consistently good um um, and he had uh, an attorney that he uh, would reference from time to time then uh the most recent she-hulk writer charles sewell did fantastic work because he's actually himself an attorney. And so he knew all this sort of thing inside it out, um, from his own experience. And he had some of the, some of the best, uh, work in that area. So there's, there's been some, some really good, um, writers in that regard lately, uh, on the DC side, there aren't quite as many standouts, but that's because there aren't characters that are also attorneys that are so prominent in the DC lineup as as they are in Marvel with characters like, uh, Daredevil, Matt Murdock, and uh, She-Hulk, Jennifer Walters, who are both attorneys.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and so, Brad, why don't you tell us, how did you first get involved with uh, the Law in the Multiverse website?
2: Oh, uh, I was just a a big fan of it as it was ongoing. And um, I reached out to James um, about writing a, a guest post because there's an area of the law I've always found very interesting. There's this area of the law called the right of publicity which is uh, a claim someone can bring, typically a celebrity, um, they, they can sue a, a person who is or a company that is using their image or likeness to profit. Like if a uh, classic example is um, the Three Stooges, someone took a T-shirt, they took charcoal drawings of the Three Stooges, put it on the T-shirt, and the estate of the Three Stooges, now deceased, uh, sued, saying this was their likeness, this is their image. You can't profit off of that. And the same thing with like false endorsements, you know, people had a a false endorsement of Woody Allen for I think American Apparel and, you know, Woody Allen suits and you can't just use my face on American Apparel. And so I contacted James because uh, I was thinking how in this world of superheroes, as they, you know, like booster gold in D.C. is always like shelling for products and just how these people would be the biggest celebrities. Right. So as they are the biggest celebrities, they're going to be getting endorsement deals potentially. Or if not, people are going to be uh, taking their right of publicity, infringing on it and using their image for for, uh, selling a product or making an action figure. And so I contacted James about writing something up about this and um, it was really it was really fun.
1: Right. So say I'm Superman. Right. And I am upset about people wearing Superman T-shirts. What exactly would be my legal recourse in that situation?
2: Well, you have a couple different ones. I mean, the the big thing there is the T-shirt. That's a logo, right? So you could talk about trademark now. And that's something that James, I think James explicitly wrote about that very issue in the book.
0: Well, about, yeah, not necessarily about, I don't know if I wrote about Superman, and his logo, but about um, superheroes in general and and how their intellectual property rights could be protected. In Superman's case, it's a little complicated because, of course, um, in most of the versions of Superman's origin story, he didn't actually design that S shield uh device that's on his uh costume that was uh, a kryptonian symbol of you know ancient origin or was with with him when he arrived uh in the spaceship or, or what have you so for example he he couldn't um he likely couldn't uh, make a copyright claim of any kind and a trademark claim would be difficult as well because in the United States while you can have common law trademark rights just by using a symbol your uh, your, your strongest trademark rights come from uh, federal trademarks which have to be registered with the the federal government with the patent and trademark office and it's pretty unlikely that superman either would do that or could even could do that with the whole secret identity thing and generally speaking you can't you can't uh, you can't register trademarks or do much of anything else in the courts under a, a nickname or a assumed name so um he might actually have kind of a a hard time of it uh characters like uh, Iron Man and others that are m- more open about who they actually are and they have a distinct persona that they adopt when they're doing their super heroics but everybody knows that tony stark is iron man at least in the marvel cinematic universe for example um that those those kinds of characters um would probably find it easier to uh develop a, an intellectual property portfolio and, and and protect it
1: uh and so brad so, so that's how you got started working on the site right did you do other uh, have you written other articles for it
0: no i
2: just i wrote two articles on that i wrote about well i wrote about the uh Fictional versions of this happening. You know, What would happen if someone tried to personify Spider-Man? Could he uh, get a lawsuit and, and win? The answer is likely no. Because in New York, uh, very interestingly, unlike a lot of other places, and New York is where Marvel exists, uh, in New York you can't sue someone for taking your right of publicity based on your persona. For example, um, if you use just Peter Parker's face and put it on a soda can, He can sue you. You put Spider-Man's face on a soda can, but you mean uh, not acknowledging trademark or copyright, and just say, that's my persona. You can't do that. New York would say, no, we can take your persona. People can do that because that's not really yours. Uh, The other post I wrote about was taking this concept and dealing with actual cases that have existed um, and cases that have existed with comic books. Um, There are two really big cases dealing with comic books and the right of publicity. One is about uh the Winter Brothers, Edgar and Johnny Winter, who are musicians. And they sued DC Comics after Jonah Hex uh had like the Autumn Brothers.
1: <laughs> and,
2: and the Autumn Brothers were like these half-worm creatures who looked just like the Winter Brothers. And they were really bad guys. And so the Winter Brothers sued. And the court said DC Comics wins. Because they haven't just taken your picture and slapped it on a soda can, they have created something new. You know, they've give you a different name, the Autumn Brothers, and they put them in, you know, a subterranean lair, and they and they made a story. They did something right, and so that's okay. It was called transformative. It's a transformative use. It's fine. That didn't work when a hockey player named Tony Twist sued Todd McFarlane of Spawn, creating Spawn. For a character he made. And in that case. The character was also. The bad guy was called Tony Twist. Tony Twistarelli. And he was a mob enforcer. Who looked nothing like the hockey player. But they were both enforcers. Tony Twist was a a St. Louis Blues hockey player. Who basically his job was to hit people. (laughs) And Tony Twist was also an enforcer. And so he sued. And interestingly there. First of all, the jury in St. Louis gave Tony Twist all the money. And then the Supreme Court of Missouri said Tony Twist wins as well, basically kind of saying comic books aren't really, and they never said it, but you could really read between the lines. They're like, comic books, not really an art form. You're just trying to monopolize on this guy's name and take his money. And so they never, they, they completely dim- diminished the concept of this transformative use test and said, we're not going to use it. We're going to say, when the artist, when the comic book artist is creating something, are they trying to create something new or are they just trying to make money? Which is silly because they're doing both. Um, but they're like, if you're trying to make money, you, you can't do it, which is a very weird concept for artists.
1: Uh, so it sounds like if you want to put someone in a comic book, you got to make them a worm. That's the, uh,
2: that's the key, you... really, in general. Yeah, I think that, that's how you win most lawsuits. <laughs> uh, I think you're getting this. Yeah. <laughs> well you know
1: I, I did major in the i was pre-law basically so yeah so that i got the worm kind of
2: insights going on But yeah it's <laughs> it's like a first semester class yeah <laughs> um okay so
1: james so so you have this site going and i thought it was interesting in the acknowledgments to the book you say that uh john schwartz from the new york times really helped bring your blog to a much wider audience uh, talk about that experience what happened
0: there yeah uh, john was one of the first if not the first uh people to ask about interviewing us uh, for a story, um, John was at the time the national legal correspondent for the New York Times, and also uh, a huge comic book fan. Uh, he's since moved on to a different desk at the New York Times, though he's still there. And uh, he found the, the idea of the site just really fascinating. And so that New York Times article was something that really uh, brought us into the, the spotlight, and uh, was, I think, instrumental in uh, giving us the momentum and attention to have a book uh, produced uh he's he is um been uh, a comic book fan for many years and actually some one of the few possessions that has followed him throughout his life uh from childhood through multiple homes uh is his membership in the uh junior justice league of america kind mm-hmm. of thing um and so he's uh something that uh, really uh struck home for him
1: yeah, yeah. Well, say a bit more about the book deal. I mean, how did that – did you approach
0: someone? Did someone approach you? How did that work? Uh, we actually had uh, multiple agents and publishers uh, approaching us um, about, uh, about a book at the time of the New York Times story and a lot of internet uh, buzz about the blog. And we ended up um, uh, picking an agent, uh, Steve Ross at Abrams Artist Agency and he he held an auction for the book rights uh, amongst uh, uh, several publishers. And as it turns out, the uh, the publisher that ended up winning the auction was uh, Gotham Books, a division of Penguin, uh, which we found uh, very funny uh, in the (laughs) the context of uh, writing about uh, superheroes and comic books, Um, and uh, they were great to work with.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that really struck me about this book is that the legal analysis is a lot more... Uh, serious, uh, a lot more rigorous than I was really expecting. I mean, I knew obviously you guys are lawyers, you were going to have real law in it, but this really goes into a pretty significant amount of detail about some of these situations.
0: Well, one of the things we wanted to emphasize is that comic is the educational possibility that uh, people could learn quite a lot from this. And also that comic books are a rich medium that it's a little hard to estimate the total number of comic books that have ever been written, but it's it's well into the above a hundred thousand uh distinct comic book stories that have been written over the many decades, and that so comic books are this rich medium with a tremendous number of stories covering almost every aspect of life and as a result um I- interacting with either explicitly or implicitly every aspect of the law and so it I think it's not the sort of thing that really could stand up to that level of analysis and scrutiny that we didn't have to invent a lot of facts or or invent a lot of law, we could really just take these rich detailed stories uh, that we know so well uh, and, and, and in that way we hope to really demystify the law and this, this show that it's not this impossibly arcane difficult thing to understand that for the most part legal concepts are pretty straightforward and pretty uh, if not simple, at least there is a logic to them
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about some more specific examples from this book. And so, Brad, as as someone who actually wrote Batman, I'm curious for your take on this, because oftentimes when I read Batman or or watch the movies, you know, Batman will... There will be some criminals, they'll commit a crime, and then Batman will beat the crap out of them and leave them tied up for the police to find. And I always just imagine these criminals' defense attorney having a field day with this situation. Uh, Like, if you were uh, the defense attorney for someone who had been caught by Batman, uh, would you think that this was a... Uh, A promising case?
2: Uh, I think that Harvey Dent uh, would have a really hard time prosecuting these people. Um, Sorry, I had to throw in the comic book reference. Um, (laughs) One of the first things is whether it's not what's called a a state action, right? So when Batman is doing these acts, James wrote about this in the the very beginning of his book. Um, He talks about uh, if Batman is acting under the authority of the state, which I thought was just a great analysis he had in here. And if he's acting for the government, not just alone, but really he's acting for the government, then all the restrictions the government has uh, on its own power have to apply to him. Things like, is he, uh, how he's interrogating, uh, how he's breaking into people's houses, how he's not reading anyone their Miranda rights. But at the same time, what he's actually doing is he's really working for the Gotham city police department. I mean, they're, They're shooting a a signal into the sky saying, help us. And then having him do all this stuff for them that they're not allowed to do. And then they get to reap the benefits. Right. And that's something that really wouldn't work in the real world. And the other thing that Ben James writes about, which is great, is testifying in costume (laughs) and how you're going to need Batman to show up in costume and testify. Right. And Batman, you really can't have someone testify in costume uh, under the confrontation clause. Uh, in the Sixth Amendment, which says that, you know, you're open to uh, being confronted with your witnesses. And if someone's wearing a mask, um, and you could, I guess you could argue different kinds of masks, you know, Batman's mask versus Robin's mask versus Spider-Man's mask versus Iron Man's mask, um, how much they're actually concealing themselves. Uh, But you really have to be able to confront your witnesses. So having this concealed person on the stand uh, might have a re- really bad implications for the prosecution. Um, but then you you get to other questions, which is, I think, even that James talks about all the time, very interesting of, well, let's say we do exist in the DC universe, right? Are we going to change our rules? And like now people can testify in masks as long as we can prove it's them. Like maybe that'll be allowed because if the Joker's running around, we're going to start breaking the rules a little bit from how they work today.
1: Right. I mean, yeah, certainly the way it's portrayed with the bat signal and say in the TV show, the the phone to call up Commissioner Gordon. I mean, it yes. does create this impression of this, uh, you know, really close collaborative relationship between Batman and the police. But say in a in a, a different Batman kind of story where he wasn't he's completely he has no contact with the police at all and they, they don't cooperate with him at all, but they still use the evidence that he presents to them. Would they be allowed to do that as long as they completely kept that that kind of separation of Church and Batman or whatever?
2: <laughs> Do you say church and batman yeah Except i mean <laughs> for batman instead i guess i should say that's also a great class i want to take <laughs> um, there are two there's two parts of this test of whether you're a state actor right the the extent the actor uh relies on the government for assistance and whether they are performing traditional governmental functions um and that's the two-part test uh and I guess when you have that kind of situation, that, that raises some interesting points that he's just beating people up and leaving them and the police are catching him. Uh, if he's leaving evidence somehow for the police to actually prosecute him, the prosecution, uh, the prosecutor's office to actually go after these criminals, then he's definitely, uh, acting for the benefit of the state, I think. But if he's just beating people up and leaving them, then there's no problem for the police because they're not going to prosecute him.
0: Right. I think that the difficulty in the situation where Batman is not actively cooperating with the police or is maybe even has an antagonistic relationship with the police, which has definitely happened in Batman, in various Batman stories over the years. I think the problem with that situation is that suppose Batman finds some, some criminals who seem to be engaged in some criminal activity. Uh, he gives them a, a good thrashing, ties them up, and leaves them maybe with some evidence, maybe with a note, uh, describing what happened, maybe nothing. The, the police show up. And the, if the criminals are smart, they're going to keep their mouth shut. And then what's going to happen with, after they talk to an attorney is the attorney's going to say, well, look, th- th- Batman's not going to testify because he can't, he can't show up on the stand, um, because of the confrontation clause, because the fact that the first thing that, that I'm going to ask him as the defense attorney is, what is your name? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and that's not going to end well for him. Um, so we, we don't have anybody testifying against you. All we have is that the police found y'all beaten up, uh, with little or no evidence, uh, on you and whatever, whatever evidence there was left on you, uh, we can simply claim was planted by Batman, this insane vigilante. Um, and so without corroborating witnesses, say, uh, victims, uh, for example, who can actually testify about what happened, uh, or uh, securities, extensive security camp, uh, footage or something like that, it's going to be pretty hard. Uh, and it's the Police do indeed have an antagonistic relationship with Batman. Why are they going to be inclined to prosecute his victims? If anything, they're going to perhaps decline to prosecute them uh, in order to try to get him to stop doing what he's doing. Uh, if he, he thinks he's helping, so we won't let him help. <laughs> um, so it's kind of a catch-22 situation. Either Batman works well with the police, in which case his methods are wildly unconstitutional, or he doesn't really cooperate with the police, in which case, why would the police cooperate with him in return?
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing that always occurs to me in Batman stories is that he's just breaking the law left and right and causing all <laughs> sorts of property destruction and assault and all sorts of things.
2: But he's in also... Fairness, most of Gotham is just a bunch of abandoned warehouses.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, oh. yeah, point taken. Yeah, right, yeah. but But he's he's breaking all these laws, but at the same time, he's he's constantly saving the city. And so it just makes me wonder... Like what what sort of discretion do the police and prosecutors have not to prosecute somebody, not to prosecute a vigilante who's saving the city repeatedly? And also, how could they could they possibly get a jury to convict him if they were to ever catch him and put him on trial? When to all these people say, hey, this guy saved our lives for five times this year. Uh, we're not finding him guilty no matter what.
0: Yeah, well, it turns out the, the police and prosecutors have almost unlimited discretion. And deciding whether or not to prosecute someone and what charges to pursue, it turns out that, um, that basically the only limitation on what's known as prosecutorial discretion is things like really overt racial prejudice, for example. Um, and even that can be difficult to prove. Um, the statist- mere statistical analysis, for example, showing that people of one race are uh, so many more times likely, disproportionately likely to be uh, charged with uh, higher level offenses than um, people of other races uh, has been found not to be enough. Uh, you really need something like a smoking gun memo where a prosecutor says, well, we are definitely only ever going to charge um, black people with first degree murder and never white people. Like you, you would really need something like that. Um, that. That is the kind of the extent to which we have prosecutorial discretion in the United States. And so uh, the. The check on that is that in many jurisdictions, prosecutors are elected, uh, uh, or if they are not elected, then they are political appointees of people who are elected, like mayors or governors or presidents. Um, And so when people are really unhappy with prosecutors' decisions, then there's a political uh, check. But that, that can be pretty difficult. But if you have Batman running around making... You know, things chaotic, and people don't like him. People are unhappy, and nonetheless, the police and prosecutors aren't doing anything about it. Um, then Harvey Dent uh, and uh, Commissioner Gordon may soon find themselves out of a job. Uh, yeah,
2: we I don't, don't, in Gotham, it is—they uh, are elected, right? We know, right. that, that prosecutors
0: elect The is elected, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that's that's one thing that could happen there. Um, and with, but if they do decide to charge Batman, well, first of all, you actually have to manage to arrest him which has proven to be difficult (laughs) historically. Um, And then second, you're going to have to prove that it was him, which is a little tricky because he seems careful about leaving evidence behind and he wears a mask um, and and a uh, a concealing costume and big flowy cape and everything. So maybe a little tricky to prove that was in fact, the person that you arrested was the person who did all that other stuff, that it wasn't some other people in, in masks. Um, so there there's some seeds of reasonable doubt there but let's suppose like just say that the the jury says hey no matter what whatever collateral damage this guy causes he has undoubtedly saved uh the city many times perhaps even us personally or people we know and they 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 acquit him they find him not guilty well that's that there's uh, the the prohibition against double jeopardy in this country is extremely strong and um that would be it there would be no retrying him for the same offenses now Theoretically, what um uh, the prosecutor could do if they wanted to be really aggressive is have one trial for one set of offenses, uh, you know, beating up one group of people or destroying some property or trespassing by running around on rooftops at night or what have you. Um and then if it didn't work, charge him with another set and another and another and another. They can't retry him for the same things, but they can try but if they have this whole long history of crimes, uh which Batman has. Um, they they could just keep trying them over and over again, and and you see that sometimes with uh, serial killers, for example, to to make a really, really strong <laughs> real world example, uh, you finally arrest this person who's a, allegedly killed you know maybe a dozen people. Um, it's very typical to only charge them with uh, the, the, a couple of murders, the ones you have the most strongest evidence for, uh, because if they're found guilty, they're going to prison for life anyway. Um, and if for some if something for some reason they're not, because the jury just is oddly sympathetic to them, or maybe there's a technical mistake with the evidence handling or something like that, then you have the other 10 murders that you can charge them with, uh, and that way you can be more certain, as opposed to going all in and risking that uh, something crazy will happen with the jury, or or you'll screw something up in a technical way, and the person will be able to say, ah, you can't try me again on any of that. You you, you brought it all to the table to start with.
2: Not to mention, they'll, they'll come the day, and you know, let's say they do acquit them there will come the day when he's going to keep going out there and doing, you know, theoretically, he keeps going out there and and, and being a vigilante. And the day comes when he's not popular because he, you know, kills Harvey Dent, supposedly. Well, now you can charge him on that. There's a new crime to charge him with. He's going to keep committing crimes. Right. So he's giving the prosecutors more and more do-overs.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I knew Batman was committing a lot of crimes, but until I read this book, I didn't really appreciate the scope of how many crimes he's committing. I mean, you talk (laughs) about if he goes to uh, in um, the Dark Knight, if he goes to a foreign country to kidnap somebody, you know. I mean, there's like so many crimes, like like arms smuggling and you know uh, immigration (laughs) violations. Just like it's just like thousands of different things.
0: Yeah, I, I think that if we look at real world examples, that there are very very few groups. Um, or, or individuals who've ever managed to do something like private policing or uh, what might be called vigilante action, uh, and not run afoul of the law. The Guardian Angels are maybe one example. They're unarmed. They're very public about what they do. Uh, that they, they probably come the, the closest. Uh, and then of course there are examples like, um at various points in his career superman has focused a lot not so much on stopping or fighting people uh criminals but on doing a lot of um just public good stuff like uh stopping natural disasters like a dam is going to burst and he and he's, and he stops the, the flooding or whatever uh that kind of stuff well obviously that's not so much a problem um so it is some of it depends on the the scope of what a superhero is trying to do and some of it depends on their methods but yeah it is, it, it is surprisingly difficult to uh to try to do something like that and not run afoul of the law. And part of the reason for that is that the law historically has frowned on what it calls self-help, uh, things like self-defense, defense of others, uh, necessity, duress, I mean, all, all these kinds of th- reasons why somebody could do something that would normally be a crime and we would say, ah, i not in this special narrow case. Uh, the, over the years, most of those laws have gotten narrower and narrower and narrower with except with some modern exceptions for things like the Castle Doctrine and Stand Your Ground laws, which are, controversially, um, a kind of a, um, a pushback against that and, and, and broadening the law of things like self-defense.
1: Right. Well, actually, on that topic, I mean, and you mentioned collateral damage, too. I mean, uh, in the most recent Superman movie, Man of Steel, it's been much commented on that Superman basically, like, levels an entire city uh, in the course of battling General Zod. And so I'm just wondering what... What criminal and or civil uh, lawsuits is Superman looking at, you think, if he makes a good faith effort to protect the Earth and he can't avoid knocking over a couple of buildings?
0: Well, it's um, it's a, not exactly clear to me what kind of defense Superman could mount, because on the face of it, at least, the Kryptonians basically said, if he comes to us peacefully, then that's fine and um there won't be any trouble um there wasn't necessarily a sense that uh, or at least publicly a sense that they planned to you know just destroy the earth or wipe out people or whatever um so it, it's i think it'd be very difficult for superman now that all the other witnesses are conveniently dead um to claim that oh no like i had no choice but to destroy to kill these people and destroy metropolis and realistically speaking, probably hundreds of thousands of people um, in in an effort to save my own skin, um, that if I had just gone along with them, uh, or if I had fled, or or, or some other option, that, uh, that that it would have been just as bad, that this was clearly the lesser of two evils, was me fighting for my own life, and then in the process, causing untold devastation around the world, or around Metropolis, anyway he
2: could argue the sudden peril doctrine for negligence when it comes just to the negligence stuff uh you can say that you know there was an emergency and you don't have to exercise the same amount of care when it comes to to stopping some sort of emergency um yeah so, you know, but, but, but usually that only extends negligence. as far as property damage right no. I'm just saying in terms of the the building destruction that's what he's got yeah not, the people yeah um I mean because they never say how many people die in man of steel we presume we presume those buildings were full of of no one, but I guess we're going to find out differently in Batman versus Superman.
0: Yeah. Um, but, but even in, in those cases, I, I think it would be, be difficult to, uh, to get away with the extremity of how bad it was, especially given how easily it would be for Superman uh, to have left the scene and had this terrible fight somewhere un, uninhabited. I don't recall any particularly good reason why it needed to happen there and why it couldn't have happened in say Antarctica. Um, Especially uh,
2: since he doesn't actually—he takes Zod to space for a minute. They're actually in space fighting for a second before plummeting back to
0: Metropolis. Right, right. So, um, so b- between his ability to, to leave, um, whether or not the, the the fighting needed to happen at all, that kind of thing. I mean, there's no requirement that somebody roll over and die uh, if you know faced with a, someone threatening your life. There's no requirement to say, like, well, I guess i just have to to die for the greater good. That's not necessarily a requirement, but even when you can act in self-defense, you still have to take care not to um, not to hurt other people. So if, say, you've got a gun and someone is threatening you, uh, and so you decide to shoot, well, that might be allowed with self-defense, but what you can't necessarily do is take a machine gun and just spray bullets wildly into a crowd uh, in an effort to strike the person who's threatening you. Um, if you hit a bunch of other people in the process, um, it's going to be very hard to argue that that was a reasonable response that, that was an appropriate uh level of force uh and level of care used in deploying that force in self-defense but he, he might
2: be able to say defense of others because I means Zod wouldn't be there but you could say well general zod was going to kill everyone so i had to do this and therefore it is now it becomes reasonable right because, well yeah,
0: that that's true as far as it goes if everybody believes him right uh, you believe him yeah, right. and that and that's why I say, like now that the now that all the other witnesses are conveniently <laughs> dead, um, it's gonna sound kinda suspicious for him to say, No, 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 you don't understand. These people who you only briefly saw and who are now dead, um, and leaving no evidence whatsoever of their existence, actually, um, we definitely going to destroy everyone in the world, uh unless I killed them first, and so what I did was, even though it caused tremendous damage and possibly killed a lot of people, was the lesser of two evils. Um and the lesser of two evils defense, the defense of justification, is kind of hard to make out in the first place. It's not usually very successful. Uh, and then to do it in the face of it's my word versus nothing, um, I don't know. It's pretty self serving, and I think it's, it's very difficult, especially because since there are no other witnesses, the only way for him to advance this argument will be uh, to testify. And that means that he can be cross examined and. Uh, that, that opens up to a pretty brutal line of cross-examination.
1: Okay, so, so say hypothetically General Zod makes an announcement over a you know, citywide loudspeaker saying, I'm here to destroy the city, your doom is at hand. Yeah. Uh, and so the court is persuaded that General Zod was going to destroy the whole city and yeah. Superman's uh, actions were the best he could do. The, so you say the, the court is persuaded that his actions were the best he could do under the circumstances. Does that absolve him of all legal repercussions, or can people still file uh, wrongful death and property damage lawsuits against him?
0: Um. So in the civil case, he's still potentially going to be open to a lot of liability. Um, that may, that lesser of two evils justification defense is, uh, is a criminal defense. And so, the, in the civil case, um, the sudden peril kind of thing that Brad was talking about earlier, um, that can work to absolve oneself of uh, some civil liability in some cases, but typically only can property damage. Um, and there are some cases that suggest, in some jurisdictions at least, that that kind of defense is only available to the government. Um, so, that the government needs to do something like destroy a bunch of buildings to prevent fire from spreading, uh, for example, um, that that's something the government can do. It's not necessarily something private citizens can do. So if you, you know if a private citizen sees that there's this fire coming down the street and it's burning buildings in its path and they don't want it to burn their own home, a private citizen can't necessarily dynamite his neighbor's house <laughs> in order to block the fire from advancing, whereas the government could potentially do that in an extreme situation.
2: The other thing that would be interesting, he could, he could say that, that Zod... And the other Kryptonians were contributorily negligent. Right? And so he'd be only <laughs> on the hook for part of the damage. And the other part well, you gotta get from Zod again would go to your jurisdiction.
0: Right, right. And of course, um since uh there is nothing to recover from Zod and his, right. his companions, uh Superman may still find himself uh footing the bill. And in any case, even if you could say, well, well, it's, it's Zod the rest are um you know, 75% liable because they started it and they were much more reckless because they don't care if anything gets destroyed. You know, they they plan to destroy it all anyway. Superman's only 25% liable for $100 billion in property damage. (laughs) 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 Uh, Of course, part of the problem anytime you talk about Metropolis or Gotham, um, both the great and terrible thing about those places is that they're not in any particular state. And so we don't really know what law to apply unless we're talking about federal law. And so the bad thing about that is, is we don't know. The good thing is that we can pretend it's in whatever state we want to and pick the one that's most convenient.
2: Um, yeah, so. that's why I wrote about Spider-Man. It was so easy because it was New York City,
0: New York yeah. State. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a consistent problem with the DC properties. They, they rarely want to situate um, their cities in any particular place, like Arrow, for example. I don't really know where that is. Uh, and Gotham and Metropolis have the same problem. So, uh, whereas Marvel's a lot more willing to say, "Nope, this is in New York," um, so it makes some parts of the analysis easier, uh, which is which is nice.
1: Hmm. Well, actually, when you guys were talking about the difficulty of uh, you know enforcing a legal judgment against General Zod, it was reminding me of this. There's this footnote in the book that I wanted to hear more about. So there was this case, uh, Gerald Mayo versus Satan and his staff. Oh yeah, which, yeah. Uh, I just like what what was I, I was curious to know more about that case.
0: Uh well basically that case involved uh, a, a a guy who was i mean he was probably not uh he's probably a bit mentally ill um and uh he what he was technically doing was filing a lawsuit against um against the devil um and uh, for alle- alleging that the devil had caused him to do all the inc- all the wrong things he'd ever done um and he was trying to file uh, in forma pauperis, which means um, arguing uh, po- poverty, and thus that the government should foot the bill for serving uh, Satan with a process for basically giving a, uh, Satan a subpoena. Uh, and uh, because normally the person filing the lawsuit has to do that themselves. And the court, with some delicacy, uh, pointed out that uh, it would probably be. Very difficult to do that. Uh, far in excess of the usual level of difficulty, uh, and so uh, and the U.S. Marshal Service, the people who would who would file, who would serve uh, process on the devil, um, were probably not equipped to do it, and um, and so denied the petition. Uh, uh, so that that's how the case ultimately ended. Um, but uh, but yeah, there have been there have been some some efforts to uh, to involve supernatural entities in the legal system. Uh, so far, none of them none of them terribly effective.
1: Okay, and then another thing I wanted to talk about is there's this interesting part where you talk about how Justice Brandeis was uh, thinking through the implications of what if in the future we have psychic technology or something like that. Uh, we want our laws to um, you know be prepared for that, essentially.
0: Yeah, so this was a, a Supreme Court case in the early 20th century where the Supreme Court was basically saying that. Um, wiretapping didn't require a warrant now that was later overturned uh to say that no wiretapping does require a warrant but in that first case brandeis dissented saying that you know hey if we say that there's no privacy in a a telephone call where does that where does that end uh and so he said that you know it may be that in some day advances in the the psychic sciences will result in uh you know some question about even our innermost thoughts being uh accessible now he probably meant psychic in a somewhat different sense than we think today he probably meant something more like psychiatry um but but nonetheless um so even if it's not about psychic powers it could be about things like um uh brain scanners and things like that things that we do with technology that are becoming more and more of the things that we can um see get a sense for what somebody's thinking uh and uh the question of whether or not the police would need a warrant to do that, and of course, we, they they would today um, we need a warrant to use something like that. Uh, and it's thanks to uh, thanks to opinions like that that pointed out that, you know, if if we don't put a pretty strong rule in place about technology, uh, that it, it could have some pretty serious consequences down the road.
1: Right. Are there other examples of that? Do you think where um thinking about comic book superpowers? Uh, might potentially lay the legal uh, framework for us to deal more productively with actual uh, capabilities that come about as a result of advancing technology?
0: Uh, I think somewhat, maybe not quite so explicitly. um, But, um, well, uh, the first case that comes to mind is uh, a a recent uh, case involving Marvel, a patent case in the Supreme Court. uh, uh, v. Um, Marvel, and where the the Justice writing the opinion, Justice Kagan, um, actually cited uh, a Spider-Man comic book for the proposition that with um, great power comes great responsibility, and had the rest of the opinion kind of riddled with little comic book references. Uh, as it turns out, I strongly disagree with the case, both in terms of its actual outcome and also Justice Kagan's decision to write, write it the way she did. Uh, the <laughs> The quick overview of the case is that a guy invented um, a web shooter toy, a thing where you like strap this thing to your arm and you move your wrist and it uh, shoots out some sort of fake web thing. And um, he approached Marvel about it, uh, about the idea of licensing it, and they said no, they weren't interested. Shortly thereafter, they came out with their own version of it, um, very likely just copying what they'd seen from him. He sued them for patent infringement they settled for uh, quite a lot of money plus uh, percentage of royalties, percentage of the sales. Then uh, the patent expired, and Marvel said, hey, there's this rule that says once a patent expires, you don't have to pay royalties on it anymore, no matter what you agreed to earlier. They take it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, well, yes, that rule is actually terrible. Everyone thinks it's terrible. Everyone thinks it's bad law. All the economists say that it doesn't make any economic sense, but it's the rule we made, and it's the rule we're going to stick with. And found in favor of Marvel, saying that Marvel didn't have to pay the guy any money anymore. Um, I found that a little uh a little distasteful uh because uh in addition to disagreeing with the court's decision, um basically they took this case where this individual inventor, this pioneering guy in a garage type, um got basically ripped off by the second largest media company in the world and now they don't have to uh, you know, pay him royalties anymore despite agreeing to that. Uh, I found it a little frivolous, a little distasteful for the Justice to then uh, sort of quote uh, uh, cute passages from Spider-Man in a decision saying that it quite literally sides with this giant corporation over the individual uh, inventor. And it just seemed a little, I don't know, I didn't like it. Um, but that's probably one of the more recent cases of where uh, comic books have in some way influenced a, a legal decision.
2: Yeah, I mean, in classically in law school, the the whole premise is hypotheticals, where the professor will ask the students a series of questions and then uh, probe them on those questions. And using hypotheticals, the students have a, a knowledge in already some, some stock stories they already know. You can really delve in there and and talk about the issues and and make them a little more fun than the classic uh, Black Acres assigned to uh, person X, person Y, that inherits this property. It, you know, is a little more dry, but Talking about uh, more fun examples certainly brings the students into the uh, discussion a little bit more. Um, talking about things like, uh, one of the things I thought was very interesting, when I was learning, you know, insanity in uh, law school, the, the, the defense of insanity was thinking about Gotham City villains. You know, is Joker insane under this standard? Could he be shown to Arkham Asylum? You know, and thinking about that, you know, kind of helped me through and figure out the the law itself. And I think that is a really useful exercise is always going through hypotheticals to figure out how the law uh, will apply in different situations.
0: Yeah, there, there have been several cases that have uh, mentioned uh, Superman and Batman and, and others um, in the comic book context um, and uh, for in t- performing their legal analysis. Um, in fact, there was a, a nice law review article that came out a, few, uh, a year or two ago. Um, where uh, a fellow actually systematically reviewed every single instance of Superman or Batman being mentioned in a in a legal case to see what they were being, why judges were bringing him up, and for what purpose, and uh, and seeing which one was you know used more often and that kind of thing, and um, so that was that was very interesting to look at. That um, yeah, judges do use uh comic book characters often metaphorically they'll say like you you know you don't have to have the the strength of superman to do this this or that you know whatever um so even just as sort of a part of the wider culture and being uh something that judges can reference uh and uh, as a way to get legal ideas across and to uh just make their language more colorful or interesting or approachable comic books and their stories uh I've had an effect on the law in, in both directions, both the tons of cases involving comic books and comic book ownership, and the ownership of characters and royalties and copyrights and all that kind of thing. So it's flowed in that direction, but it's flowed in the other direction, too, with uh, with those stories being part of our common culture and and judges um, using them in their in their opinions. I think one that really
2: is interesting, you know, looking at how uh, the justices of the Supreme Court just looked at, you know, searching cell phones. And the burden that the police need to look at a cell phone um, and how it's higher than um, looking in your pocket or your wallet and, and looking at that kind of in this sci-fi technology kind of way and looking at Superman's X-ray vision. You know, what is reasonable under the Fourth Amendment in terms of searches? And if you look at, um, you know, X-ray vision, looking through someone's walls, uh, this is an example I think James uses in his book, um, is, is really, I think, uh, another way of thinking about, you know, the future of the law and how things will transpire is thinking about, you know, the, the sci-fi technology we already know. Well, how will that apply to the real world?
1: Right, right. Well, and speaking of using superheroes uh, to teach lessons, I mean, Brad, we mentioned in the intro that you're, you taught a, a college class involving superheroes. So uh, do you want, just want to talk about that experience and why you chose to use superheroes for that?
2: Yeah. So um, I teach at the university of Missouri, Columbia, and we have um, an undergraduate program. There's the honors college. And these honor students, uh, we like to introduce them to a, a lot of broad subjects and they can take some classes that are, are generally one or two credit hours, um, that just can kind of introduce them to things that they usually don't know about. Um, and then they can be outlets for discussions and really just into critical thinking. There's like a class on Sherlock Holmes and they can students read Sherlock Holmes stories and they discuss different issues. And I thought it'd be fun to have a, a, a class where we look at comic books. Um, superhero comic books, just mainstream superhero comic books, and uh, read them, discuss them as literature, discuss the ideas in them, and then tie them into broader concepts. But I-, I think it was important. I wanted the students to look at the comic books on their own terms, and not just, you know, comic books are are something they're lesser or better or the same. I just want to look at comic books as stories. Let's read these as stories and discuss the characters and discuss what you felt about them and all the problems that that exist too um we're, i'm doing a panel at the end of the month at the school talking about ms marvel and uh, the the recent ms marvel comic book um and talking about uh you know how comic books have not generally been very good about portraying people other than white males and what that says about our culture and what this says about comic books and so that's just an interesting thing to, to have with the students they they find it fun the interesting thing is i thought i'd have 20 students who were comic book nerds and there was like one guy who'd ever read a comic book before. And it was 19 people who had seen the Avengers and thought this will be fun. Hmm. So.
1: Uh, okay. So there's just one other thing I kind of want to ask you about. So you guys uh, or James in your, at the beginning of your book, you note that superhero, the terms superhero and supervillain are trademarks owned by Marvel and DC. And that you have to be really careful about using them. And I'm just curious from your perspective as a lawyer, do you think that this is reasonable and do you think it will continue this way forever
0: do you think it's reasonable to be concerned about how you use them or do you think it's no, do, reasonable do think
1: it's, that the do you think it's reasonable that those terms are trademarks that are owned by particular corporations
0: oh well i don't know if i'd want to uh <laughs> 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 how, how honest do you want me to be um uh, well uh hell uh, no i think it's ridiculous um, that there are virtually no trademarks that are co owned by competitors in a market, um, especially when they don't make the same thing. Uh, Victorinox and another company co own the Swiss Army uh, trademark for Swiss Army knives, but they make identical or virtually identical knives uh, that serve the, the same purpose. <laughs> Just go into a comic book convention sometime and try to argue that Marvel and DC make virtually identical comic books. Um, and see if you make it out alive Um, so the idea that um, they are you know co-owners of this mark and that the important thing is that when people go buy a superhero comic book that what they see is ah yes it says superhero on it and therefore i know it comes from this one particular source that it's definitely going to be good quality except that if what you want is batman comic book or even just a dc comic book and what you pick up end up getting is a marvel comic book just because it happens to say superhero on it you're probably going to be pretty disappointed none of the stories or characters are going to be familiar to to you at all uh except in maybe some sort of crazy crossover event um so the idea that these uh that this mark is a a useful thing to have to, to separate up dc and marvel versus everybody else i think it doesn't make any sense generally speaking if somebody wants a dc comic book they want a dc comic book or a marvel book they want a marvel book they don't want a dc or marvel i don't really care which um that that doesn't really happen much um so i think that's one reason why it's ridiculous another reason why i think it's ridiculous is that those words have just completely lost all meaning in terms of if you ask somebody hey what is a superhero oh a superhero is the protagonist in a DC or Marvel hmm. comic book, and nothing else. Nobody thinks that. A superhero is a, uh, any kind of superpowered um, uh, superpowered protagonist, in any, in a, in a, some, often in a comic book, but it could be in a cartoon, it could be in a movie, uh, it could be in a TV show, it could be in uh, uh, ordinary written literature. Um, so those terms... Uh, it could also just be a person who's really good at something, like, man, that, that guy is my superhero. Or uh, that teacher, man, she is a, a superhero teacher. Uh the the term is uh, is totally generic in my opinion, and the idea that it's a meaningful trademark, uh that it or supervillain for that matter, are meaningful trademarks is 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 ridiculous. And more more than that even, you see the term used by other by non um DC and Marvel properties. Um the uh, The Incredibles, for example, uses the the, the word superhero, um, and that movie was – yeah, the superhero is super villain, one of the two, uh, and that movie was made before Disney bought Marvel, so uh, that that's an example of a you know competing uh, property using this trademark. Um and nobody cared, and it's not like anybody heard that line in the movie and gasped and said, "Oh gosh, you know what, what, what does it even mean?" <laughs> this isn't a DC or Marvel movie. Um, so I, I think for all kinds of reasons why trademarks can can fail, I think that that this certainly does, and I think it's kind of ridiculous. But nonetheless, DC and Marvel persist in um, in using those marks to stop people from registering. Trademarks that use supervillain or superhero uh, for other purposes, you know, ice cream, dental equipment, all, all kinds of things people have tried to register trademarks for that use those terms, and they've stopped them. So um, I, th- I, think it's, I think it causes real problems. It's not just a hypothetical issue, uh, and I think it's uh, a silly state of affairs that probably won't end until a company with a lot more money uh, than a dentist's office or an ice cream company uh, just decides to push back against it.
1: All right, cool. So, uh just to wrap things up, James, you want to just tell us uh, what's going on with
0: law in the these days? Yeah. So, uh I'm not posting quite as frequently as I once was, but I do I do try to to get posts up at least maybe every once a, a month or so. And I, I do have multiple uh, guest posts being worked on by various people that I uh, greatly appreciate always. Um and uh I have a tremendous backlog of questions from readers uh that uh, I'm slowly chipping away at. Um, and, uh, uh, and there have been quite a few people who've written, um, with questions that I I haven't turned into posts, but I've responded, uh, privately. And I I think I need to collect a lot of those shorter, quicker answers into some mailbag posts and revive that, uh, and, uh, bring that back, uh, as a feature of the blog. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of what we're doing these days is, uh, a little, a little slower, a little fewer updates, but, uh, but still definitely, uh, uh, putting things out there.
1: All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with James Daly and Brad DeNoyer and talking about this book, The Law of Superheroes. It's really interesting. You guys should all go check it out. So James and Brad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thanks. It's been fun. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to James Daly and Brad DeNoyer for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who signed up this week to support us on Patreon including Zach Chapman, Matt Gunterman, Sarah Dixon, Michael Busby, Oliver Collins, Alicia Brenner, Kim Murphy, and Stephanie Harris. Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time.
0: The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarCurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.